0: Good morning. I uh, I had a difficult time deciding what I was going to preach today. I I wrestled through any number of things. Uh, The last year uh, in the quarter I've had an opportunity to preach, I've been taking us through the life of Samson, and I've so much enjoyed Old Testament narrative that I was thinking about taking us to the Old Testament again today, maybe to another judge like Gideon, and I I may still do that uh, eventually or to Ruth, or to Daniel, but I've been taking my church through the book of Philippians. And, uh, and I was also planning to teach on Old Testament narrative, how to interpret Old Testament narrative this morning. And then the class got me back on Revelation, which is what we were talking about last week, and how to interpret apocalyptic literature. And that was the class today, so I didn't even get to Old Testament narrative today, but we'll have to catch up next week and uh, we're going to pick up uh, this morning in Philippians chapter 3 uh, at a text that uh, I think is sometimes overlooked. uh, Philippians 3, verses 17 to 21. I'll read the text for us and pray. Paul writes to the church in Philippi, Brothers, join in imitating me, and keep your eyes on those who walk according to the example you have in us. For many to himself may we pray our father we ask for your blessing on both the reading and now the preaching of your word and Lord I pray that you would do good things in this room in our hearts good things for our souls point us to Jesus and get much glory for yourself we pray through Christ amen amen I want to speak to you this morning on the necessity of godly examples The necessity of godly examples. Some of you may remember the old marketing strategy from Gatorade with Michael Jordan. The slogan was, be like Mike. We were supposed to be like Mike by drinking Gatorade like Mike, and then you could play basketball like Mike. And we all know that we could drink all the Gatorade in the world, and we would never, ever play like Mike. But the commercial illustrated for us an important biblical teaching, that Christians need examples. Christians need role models to follow. Humans, uh, in general, are creatures of habit. And from the earliest stage of our lives, we're mimicking someone else. Our parents, we learn to talk and walk by imitation. We gain our accent by imitation. We learn to sit at the table and hold a fork by imitation, and the list goes on. And so imitation theology is something that we should not overlook in Scripture. We find the Apostle Paul commanding Christians to imitate him a number of times in the New Testament. And so it's vital that Christians have godly examples to look for and look to for in our sanctification. He's been, Paul's been talking about that here in Philippians. He talked about his justification earlier in chapter 3, that he has been credited the righteousness of, of Jesus Christ. He's had all of his sins pardoned, and he's received that by faith alone. And if we are justified before God, then God uh, places his spirit within us, and he sanctifies. He is working to sanctify us. And we need examples of sanctification and in our sanctification. So he says, in verse 17, "Brothers join in imitating me." And this was not a proud thing for Paul, because he's already confessed in the previous text that he had not arrived, which actually qualifies him to be followed. That's not to say that we aren't to follow the example of Jesus, we are, but in Jesus we find perfection. We see Jesus resisting sin and perfectly obeying, but we cannot look to Jesus to see how a justified sinner resists sin and strives for obedience. To to find a justified sinner striving for obedience, we find that in someone like Paul. And so he says in 1 Corinthians 11, 1, Be imitators of me as I am of Christ. And so Paul taught new Christians how to live, how to submit which shows us many aspects of the Christian life that are better caught sometimes than taught. How how else will we know what a godly marriage looks like without godly husbands and wives? What does godly parenting look like if we don't have faithful parents in our church to look to? Christian homes, what does that look like? Family worship, how to love, how to live, how to trust, how to disagree, reconcile and forgive, how to share the gospel how to pray we learn those things by looking around us and looking at others and so christians need examples and we need examples outside of our context you see here in verse 17 paul's pointing to himself he's not a native philippian and when he wrote this epistle he was hundreds of miles away in prison in rome he wasn't the person the easiest person to imitate at this time but he had spent a lot of time with the philippian church And so he could point to himself and and their memory of him. And I think Paul would say we can look to and we should look to examples like him outside of our context. We should look for examples in Scripture. Obviously, we should imitate the good examples of God's Word and learn from their faithfulness and their sins. We learn from faithful and sinful Noah, Abraham, Jacob, Joseph, Moses, David, Solomon, the apostles, especially Peter and Paul. We should look to Scripture for examples to follow. We should look for examples in church history. I encourage you to read widely in church history. Read biography. Be familiar with names like Tertullian, Cyprian, Athanasius, Augustine, Patrick, Anselm, John Wycliffe. John Huss. John Huss paved the way for Martin Luther and the Reformation. Luther, Calvin, Zwingli, Knox, the Puritans. Read the Puritans. John Owen, John Bunyan, Jonathan Edwards, the Wesley Brothers, Whitfield, Wilberforce, William Carey, John Newton, David Livingston, Charles Spurgeon, C.S. Lewis, Martin Lloyd-Jones, one of my personal favorites, Francis Schaeffer... Carl Henry, I could go on. These are names that we should look to and say, I can look to faithfulness, I can look to sacrifice, I can look to obedience in these examples and learn from them. And we should also learn from examples that are in distant churches and other places, even in our own time period. Some of the most influential uh, people in my life have been men from the Gospel Coalition. Don Carson, Tim Keller, men from the Together for the Gospel Conference, Ligon Duncan, Albert Moeller, in our day, when, when we don't know what boys and girls are anymore, we need to learn from the Council on Biblical Manhood and Womanhood, uh, Desiring God Ministries and John Piper, Founders Ministries, Ligonier Ministries, and the late R.C. Sproul, Grace to You and John MacArthur, Nine Marks and Mark Dever, Stephen, thought of you, you would say Johnny Hunt, Right? Johnny Hunt and Woodstock, and others would say Adrian Rogers and Stephen Olford and, and many others. But friends, I remember 15 years ago, I had uh, just been out of Fruitland. I was at North Greenville. I, I was single. Uh, I worked. I had some money. I had the time to travel. I remember there were a couple of years there where I could not be satisfied with enough teaching. I mean, I was driving to Orlando to Ligonier Conferences, and I was going to Washington, D.C., to Capitol Hill Baptist in 9 March, and I was flying to Minneapolis and going to to, to John Piper and and hearing Sinclair Ferguson desiring God. and I mean, I was going because I could not be satisfied. I was looking for men to look to and to listen to and to learn from and examples in my life, and I can't tell you the benefit. I can't tell you the benefit. If you have the opportunity, read widely. Listen widely. Learn widely from men. Go to conferences. Listen. Soak it in. We need one another. We need examples like Paul. And God has given them to us in Scripture. He's given them to us in church history. He's given them to us in our own day. And so we need these examples uh, outside of our context, but we also need examples within our context. Paul says here in verse 17, to keep your eyes not just on Him, but on those who walk according to the example you have in us, that is, in in the apostles. And so this is another way that I think Scripture teaches us to unite with a local church. You need a local context. You need examples within your church. Find others in your church that have been Christians longer than you have. I recommend finding someone around your own age who is an experienced believer. And look for someone beyond your age who is an experienced believer believer you know there's a man in my church who's 90 years old who who has been sharing the gospel longer than i've been alive who would go into the community many years ago and go door to door and share the gospel and saw people saved. i need to spend time with him i need to hear from him i need to learn from him i need to look at his example and so we need those within our church and we need examples within our own community we should look to fellow believers we know locally maybe not in our church but in our area who we have some regular contact with. And that's why I encourage you to spend time in pastor's conferences locally. You know, when I was here in Hendersonville, there was hardly a Monday morning that I was not sitting in a circle at the Carolina Baptist Association with men who were older than me and younger than me, men who were retired and men who were active. Why? Because I needed them. I needed their example. You need their example. Maybe you have a neighbor. Maybe you have a coworker. You can meet with for regular contact for guidance and discipleship and so remember that living in the gospel means that i'm used to looking to another right in my justification i'm used to looking to someone else for my righteousness i don't have righteousness and you don't either so i look away from myself to jesus to receive righteousness because i need that in order to be legally declared righteous and receive that through trust in christ But I need to look also outside of myself for examples of justification to follow. Excuse me, of sanctification to follow. And so Christians need examples outside their context, from Scripture, from history, from other places. We need examples from within our context, from within our own church, from within our own community. So find those, identify those, and follow hard after it. And, and, And Paul gives us here in verse 18 the reason. You say, why is it so important? Verse 18 says, For, you could translate that because, for or because many of whom I have often told you and now tell you even with tears, walk as enemies of the cross of Christ. So why was Paul urging the practice of following and looking to examples? Because many false believers and teachers are competing for your attention. You need faithfulness to look at, to look to, and to grow from and to mature in. First John 4 1, John says, For many false prophets have gone out into the world. Not a few. You know, if there's one thing I find myself talking about on a very regular basis in preaching through books of the Bible, it is the problem of false teaching and false teachers. I, I sound like a broken record sometimes because it has been a problem from the beginning. And here it is, 2 John 7, for many, many deceivers have gone out into the world. And, and, and so they're leading us, they're, they're walking as enemies of the cross. That, that metaphor of walking is a frequent image in the New Testament to describe someone's manner of living, their lifestyle, their, their, their habits, their patterns. The Puritan, John Owen, one example I look to, said, in many places, it is useless to seek for Christianity among Christians. That was the 15 or the 1600s. So, who were the false teachers that Paul was concerned about in Philippi? Here in verse 18. Well, their identity is uncertain. One thing is clear, that whomever they were, they were, not, they were not professing unbelievers. They were professing believers. They weren't total pagans. How do we know? Well, because one, Paul says he's warning them with tears. He, he's really distraught over this because he, he knows the enemy is within. It's insidious. And for another, it isn't likely that, that the Philippian Christians would have been tempted to model themselves after people who didn't at least claim to be Christians. And Paul's description of these people as enemies of the cross indicates that Paul is thinking of people who claim allegiance to the cross but who oppose it in some way. And I would say they're opposing it with their lives. Another contemporary example, Don Carson, said these people, like uh, they, they talk a good line, they dupe the unwary and the undiscerning, they parade themselves as Christian leaders, and perhaps even exhibit a good deal of power. And so Paul addresses several enemies of the gospel in this passage, or in the book of Philippians, that we can look to and say, I think this is who he's referring to. In chapter 1, remember he's in Rome, he's writing to Philippi And he says that there are professing Christians in Rome who wanted to hurt him now, I know that's hard to believe that there's people in the church who would want to hurt you But there are people in the church who wanted to hurt Paul in chapter 1 verse 15 And then there are Judaizers referred to here in chapter 3 These are professing Christians who were adding to the gospel Jesus wasn't enough justification by faith alone was not enough. But, but here I believe Paul's referring to a third enemy of the gospel in this passage. Uh, and that is Gentile libertines. Those who are antinomian in their living. So he, he transitions from one extreme group, the legalists, to the libertines. From the legalistic Judaizers to the libertine Gentiles. You see, legalists add to the gospel. They, they say, it's Jesus... By faith plus something. And the libertine subtracts from the gospel. They say, yeah, yeah, the gospel justifies you, but, but hold the sanctification. Paul says, are we to continue in sin that grace may abound? Romans 6. So it seems clear that the enemies Paul's thinking of here were, were, were Gentiles who professed to be Christians, but whose lives clearly identified them as enemies of the cross. Their lives denied their profession. And we should be very concerned for ourselves and for our people by this threat. Paul says here that he constantly warned believers of this threat, and he did so even with tears. Don Carson, again, said, We must not become people who denounce but who do not weep. Neither may we become people who weep but never denounce. Too much is at stake both ways. And so, friends, in our day, to have a right understanding of the gospel is so rare Yes, I believe that. It is so rare for people to have a right understanding of the gospel today that once we gain a right understanding of it, we must fight with all our might to remain clear in that understanding because so much of what we hear and what people are being taught subverts and distorts the true gospel of grace. So how can we do it? How can we detect an enemy of the cross that he refers to here? He says, for many... Walk as enemies of the cross of Christ. Well, first, look for a teacher's understanding of the cross. When you read someone, when you listen to someone, ask some questions. What is the place of the cross in their teaching? And by cross, of course, Paul is he's thinking of the atoning death of Jesus and all that it represents. And so let me help you identify some common assaults by giving you some questions to ask of someone's teaching. One, do they view Jesus and the cross as as a mere martyrdom? Jesus was not a mere martyr. A a martyr is someone whose death is sometimes unintentional. Jesus' death was very intentional. It's on purpose. It, It serves as an inspiration. A martyrdom serves as an inspiration for others committed to the martyr's cause. A martyr is a witness... And Christian martyrs are wonderful examples, yes. But the cross of Christ was no mere martyrdom. It was an atonement. Okay, it was an atonement. Words like vicarious in the place of. Substitutionary atonement is what Christ did. So, do they view Jesus as a mere martyr? Second, do they view the cross as the tragic death of a helpless man? On a purely human level? We can say from the Scriptures that Jesus' death was was absolutely murder. It's a tragedy that any time someone's life is taken from them. But it's even more tragic when that life is the perfect, sinless, eternally glorious Son of God in the flesh. It's the worst crime of murder ever committed because He's the only righteous man to have ever lived. But this is not where Scripture leaves the death of Jesus. It was the foreordained plan of the Father willingly embraced by the son who had all power and all authority lay his life down and to take it up again he's the good shepherd who lays his life down as a willing sacrifice john 10 acts 2 acts 4 isaiah 53 it was not the tragic death of a helpless man he laid it down he took it up again he was not helpless and only in the sense that man was wicked in the in the act, was it tragic? It was wonderful and glorious because it was the plan of the Father. Third, do they believe that the cross has meaning only if you think it does? There are people in history who say that there's nothing objective about the cross. That nothing actually happened there spiritually. There was no, there was no wrath-absorbing atonement. There was no penalty paid all that talk is old, primitive talk. This is the theology, I think, of a man like Rudolf Bultmann, who said, you look at the cross, and if you look at the cross and you feel something, then it means something. If you look at the cross and it, and it compels you to do something, or it gives you warm fuzzies, or it makes you want to love somebody, then, it, then it, you give it meaning. It's not objective, it's subjective, they'll say. They, they, they might... All the way deny the historicity of the crucifixion or, or at least its spiritual significance and tell people that if believing the cross makes you feel good or boosts your self-esteem or motivates you to a life of virtue, then the cross is important. That is not true at all, friends. The cross of Christ was an objective atonement where a penalty, your penalty was paid on the cross. Your sins were atoned for. Something happened that was applied to you. It was real. Do they, number four, do they reject wrath in connection with the cross? Oh, this has been the view of liberal theology for the past century. The notion that that God is wrathful is offensive today. It's not even one of his attributes anymore. Does God have any any wrath anymore? I mean, these teachers refuse to listen to what they'll call a bloody religion, a bloody cross, calling it primitive and obscene. I, I couldn't agree more. That it's primitive and obscene because that's what it took to save us. It was a bloody, ugly thing to save vile people like us. They claim that such a view makes the God of the Bible no different than the pagan deities who demand human, even child sacrifice, to be appeased. They'll say it's cosmic child abuse. Blasphemy. These claim that wrath is just simply incompatible with the God of God of the New Testament. Friends, on the cross of Christ, there was a propitiation. The wrath of God was satisfied and a penalty was paid and sinners were saved. Did anything happen at the cross? Yes, I was saved at the cross. You were saved at the cross. You received the benefits by faith. Just ask Ananias and Sapphira if God still has wrath. New Testament. Do they reduce, number five, the cross, to a mere example to be followed? Now, we're talking about examples today. And there are exemplary qualities to Jesus, to his life and his ministry and the cross. Absolutely. There's things to be look, we look to. We look to the cross. It is a lovely, ultimate example of sacrifice and love, but it's not only that. that, that, that you know, some will teach that what Jesus came to accomplish was to teach people how to get along. How to live at peace with one another. The cross was just an example to be imitated, not a place of substitution for sinners or a sacrificial death on behalf of others or a judgment-bearing penalty-paying atonement. But that's exactly what it is. You know, if I'm drowning in the ocean, or really better, I'm dead, I've drowned in the ocean. That's really where we are. We're not drowning, we're, we're drowned. I don't need someone to come out there and teach me the backstroke. I need somebody to save me and then infuse life into me. You know, Jesus didn't come to teach you how to save yourself. Jesus didn't come to add to your work. Jesus came to save you. And he did it. He did it. He was successful. Number six, does the cross that they preach have the power to justify and sanctify? I think this actually gets to the heart of the problem Paul's addressing here. There are those who will lead you to believe that the cross saves you from hell, but does not save you from sin. They will say that when you are saved, Jesus becomes your Savior, but if you want to be a serious Christian, then you should repent of sin and make Jesus your Lord. I've said it before, and I'll say it again. You don't make Jesus anything. Jesus is the Lord. You submit to that, you yield to that, you don't make Him that. He is the Lord. And so when we come to Christ and we come to the cross, we come to Savior and Lord. Romans 10 is very clear. That if we confess with our mouth that, our mouth that Jesus is Savior, no, if we confess with our mouth that Jesus is Lord, and you believe in your heart that God raised Him from the dead, you will be saved. And those who are saved have, have submitted to His Lordship. They have submitted to sanctification. And they will be sanctified, not just justified. He, he gets us out of hell and He gets hell out of us. He saves us from the penalty. He saves us from sin's power. And one day he will save us from sin's presence. Justification, sanctification, glorification. And lastly, does their teaching even have a cross? There's, there's all kinds of teaching and preaching today that don't even have a cross. There's something noticeably absent from a lot of supposed Christian teaching today, and that's, that's a cross period. Crossless preaching, Christless Christianity is all over the place. The gospel then becomes about how Jesus can meet your felt needs and give you all the worldly things you ever wanted. Words like repentance and obedience and sacrifice and suffering are nowhere to be found. So much so that their preaching, their teaching, and their gospel is another religion altogether. And so the first way to detect an enemy of the cross is to ask yourself, what is a teacher's understanding of the cross? And ask some of those questions. Analyze what is their view. Where's the cross and what does it mean? And second, look for idolatry. Ask, is Jesus being replaced with or displaced by something? You notice he refers to these enemies of the cross as having their God as their belly. You know, what he's referring to here is more than just the the desires of the stomach. He's referring, he's using as an analogy to refer to bodily desires and sinful appetites and anything that replaces God in your affections and in your ambitions and and appeals to that. Um, You know, obviously I'm thinking in part here of health, wealth, and prosperity preaching here that's attacked. I I think of, you know, my, my favorite prophet is Peter Popoff. Anybody ever listen to Peter Popoff? This guy, he is a piece of work. Stephen's back there nodding I'm glad you know I I called the number one time yes I did because I wanted the miracle water and they sent it to me in this little little thing and I said you know you can drink it for your health or you can pour it on your wallet for your wealth so and then they sent me a prayer cloth you know and then they call and then the recording says don't hang up uh, I, I've never seen such an explosion of miracles. Divine transfers of millions of dollars. And I hear these people excitedly testifying that God's blessed them with 30,000 and another said 94,000 in the bank and she thought it was a mistake. And, and then he sends these things out, miracle manna. Friends, what, what is the, what's behind all that? You know, It's this. Their God is their belly. People who worship temporal, earthly things. Oh, it appeals to them all day long. I mean, this is what's happening in John 6 when Jesus feeds the 5,000. Right. They, he feeds them, and the next day he goes to the other side of the sea. They follow him there, and he says, you didn't follow me because of the signs I performed. You followed me because you wanted breakfast. You were looking for food, physical food. You just wanted me to feed you. I can give you, you know, they wanted him to go to, the, to to Jerusalem. They wanted to take him by force and make him king, John says in John 6. Why? Because he can go to Jerusalem, and man, he can he can throw the Romans out, and he can make food, and he can... He can liberate us and he'll give us all the earthly wealth and greatness and health. He can heal us from all our sicknesses. It'll be great. And he says, no, you've got to eat my flesh and drink my blood. Whoa, what is this all about? They were offended by the end of the chapter. They leave. Most of them are gone. And he looks to the 12 and says, you want to go away as well? Lord, to whom shall we go? You have the words of eternal life. Chapter 7 is earthly brothers who are not believers yet are kind of like, what's going on? You need to be going to Jerusalem and showing your greatness. And so he rebukes them. Friends, it's the same old story. Let's suppose for a moment that that these things are what Christianity is all about. Can miracles cure my sicknesses and diseases forever in this life? No. Can money provide everything I need or want in this life? You know... Anything that takes the rightful place of Jesus and his sacrifice, his atonement, his forgiveness, his righteousness is an idol. I have to move on for the sake of time. The first way to detect an enemy of the cross is to find the place of the cross in their teaching and then to find any substitutes for the cross in their teaching, any idols for the cross in their teaching. And then third, listen, listen for where they boast. Ask who or what is getting the glory in their teaching. You notice as Paul says here, they glory in their shame. They don't glory in God. They don't glory in Christ. They glory in themselves. If a teacher never teaches, whoever does not bear his own cross and come after me cannot be my disciple is a false teacher. Whenever you see a professing Christian teacher flaunting things he should be ashamed of, then you know they're to be rejected. Now hear me well. I'm not saying that owning some nice things is always a sign of glorying in your shame. But if things are the pursuit of a person's life, where is Christ in that? You know, things can be obstacles and distractions and not blessings and opportunities and tools. I mean, years ago, I had, to, you know, I thought about this. Nobody's ever done this. Uh, I've never had to have this problem. But I thought, you know, if somebody gave me, you know, a $70,000 vehicle as a pastor, what should I do with it? Should I keep it? Should I drive it and just say, Lord, thank you, Lord, for the blessing? Or should I sell it and use the money for ministry? You know, there, there's, any, there's a number of right answers to that question. But one thing I thought about when that question came to my mind was this. At the, at the particular time in my life, I, I was ministering to a lot of people who lived in poverty, people who lived in the 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 run-down trailer park who lived in the project, who was homeless. And I thought, you know, what what good would it do if I pull up in the trailer park in a $75,000 vehicle and say, I want to tell you about my treasure, Jesus. I I don't know that they're going to hear the message. I, I don't know that they're going to hear that my treasure is Jesus because of the distraction in the driveway. And so, friends, we should never, no teacher should ever put obstacles and barriers to the gospel in front of people. We should be willing to lay those things aside and not glory in our shame, but glory in one thing, glory in the gospel, glory in the message. And so we have been delivered from boasting in self and boasting in stuff and and our only boasting is in the cross. Paul said, Galatians 6, 14, but far be it from me to boast except in the cross of the Lord Jesus Christ. That's what I boast in. That's what you should boast in. It's what we boast in. And number four, fourth way to detect a false teacher, search for the trap of worldliness. This is is kind of related to the others, but where am I being asked to invest my time, my money, my resources, my energy? They set their minds on earthly things. Their minds are fixed on the temporal, not the eternal. And so enemies of the cross don't necessarily focus on evil, sinful things, but the substance of their teaching is what belongs to this world. They live for the present. They live for the here and now. The earthly, the temporal, the things that keep us restless, that keep us dissatisfied, the things that satisfy for a time and disappoint us again. And sometimes I wonder if, I know this is not the motive of everyone, but I wonder if sometimes there are American Christians who say, I want to go minister to the poor starving masses in a third world country because they just can't imagine a world without all the things they enjoy. For them, the greatest hell is to be without their iPhone and their favorite celebrity. I mean, I don't think most are motivated that way, but we need to examine our hearts and say, really, what is the fundamental problem in that country? It's not that they don't have enough stuff. It's that they're sinners, and they're under the wrath of God, and they need the good news of Jesus Christ to rescue them from eternal hell and from their sin even now in its power. And so the gospel teaches us to transfer our portfolio to heaven where moth and rust does not corrupt, where thieves cannot break in and steal. So detect an enemy of the cross, ask these questions. What is the place of the cross in their teaching? Is Jesus being displaced by something? Who or what is receiving glory? And fourth, where am I being asked to invest? The last things I'll say, and I'll say them quickly because it's in the text, is I think Paul in verses 20 to 21 also give us some... some, some, ammunition to combat these allurements that the enemies of the cross give in verses 20 and 21 he says but our citizenship is in heaven no, that's a tra- see that transition this is an enemy of the cross but our citizenship is somewhere else right? eternal perspective our citizenship is in heaven so remember where home is remember where home is Our citizenship belongs somewhere else. We've been dropped in behind enemy lines. We're here for a time to do a job, and then we're gone. We're out of here. Our citizenship is in heaven. We're homesick for heaven. And so real Christians should not try to live like this world is our home. We're citizens of heaven, living as resident aliens of the earth. When Christian man's epitaph read of this blessed man let this praise be given heaven was in him before he was in heaven I want that to be true of me And second remember not only that heaven is home but rescue is coming And from it from heaven we await a savior not a, something better than just an example a savior Lord Jesus Christ. And third, remember the glory that awaits you. When he comes, what will he do? Who will transform our lowly body to be like his glorious body? Uh, any remnants of our bellies being our gods will be gone. Our, our bodies will perfectly desire, hunger for, long for what God wants for us. He will resurrect us. He will transform us and make us like Him in our glorious body. And fourth, remember that the judgment of God is against the enemies of the cross. He will transform our lowly bodies to be like His glorious body by the power that enables Him even to subject all things to Himself. That's King, that's Lord, that's judgment. Remember, judgment is coming against enemies of the cross. Remember where your home is. It's where your citizenship is. Remember that a Savior is coming to rescue us. Remember, there's glory awaiting us. Eternal, limitless glory in the resurrection. And remember, God's judgment is against his enemies. Remember that when we find worthy examples to follow, and we're able, then we are able to warn others of the enemies of the gospel. Then we too become godly examples for others. There are people in our churches, and I'm finding this very true in my church because of its history. I'm having to forcefully pull them away from 30 years Of leadership by enemies of the cross. I say this knowing that I'm live, but it's true. To warn them of false teaching and to look around and see its destructive effects. Don't misunderstand me. We're not saved by imitation or examples, we cannot atone for our own sins, neither can anyone else but Christ. It is only as we are accredited the righteousness of Jesus by faith alone that we're justified before God. The place to begin imitating believers is to follow their lead by believing upon Christ, repenting of our sin, and remembering the words of James 4. Do you you not know that friendship with the world is enmity with God? Therefore, whoever wishes to be a friend of the world makes himself an enemy of God. Are you the Lord's friend? And if you're still, I trust no one is here today, an enemy of the cross, but if in any way your teaching is, repent of that today. Repent of that today. Be a friend of God, a friend of the cross. Preach cross a cross-centered Christian gospel. May we pray. Our Father, we come to you this morning recognizing that there's a danger that's always against the church and that is of enemies of the cross infiltrating our churches sometimes it comes in surprising places from surprising people so Lord give us vigilance give us watchfulness and give us deep conviction about what the cross is and is not And I pray, Father, that every graduate of Fruitland Baptist Bible College would never fall into the trap of a crossless, Christless Christianity. And that their preaching of the cross would be apostolic. It would be wrath-bearing, penalty and judgment-paying, atonement, substitution, rich, deep words like that would be used that we would be faithful to the cross, saying as we enter glory, as we claim our citizenship finally, fully, nothing in my hand I bring, simply to thy cross I cling. In Jesus' name, amen.